hype music to talk about some science, which is what we're about to do on Ron Sense today. This is Ron. Long-awaited science episode is here. Um, for those who know me, um, this isn't news, but I work as an electrical engineer, um, and so science has always been uh, something that I'm super passionate about. I'm very interested in learning, learning new things, figuring out how stuff works, understanding everything to a greater level than just accepting it as as it exists. Um, and so I figured with my electrical engineering background, it would be best that maybe if I'm going to delve into this, I start in my wheelhouse. Uh, and so today we're going to talk about how electricity gets generated and ends up at your house. And it charges the phone that you might be listening to this podcast on or the computer that you might be looking at right now or the air conditioning keeping you in an excellent temperature um so uh the the big thing for me moving forward with scientific episodes is like not all of them are going to be in my wheelhouse and so the plan is to look through studies kind of read them and break them down um studies and scientific journals whatnot uh scientific articles um hopefully ideally eventually get some guests and kind of discuss topics more in depth um and so when the stuff's like you know obviously not in my wheelhouse the plan is to sort of present the evidence as i'm reading it and then sort of what that seems to what conclusions i sort of draw out of that um but mainly it's more so i'm learning with you not exactly telling you how it is um, in this case, this is a little bit different because this is my wheelhouse. So th- what I want to kind of do here is make you feel like after you've listened to this, that like you could tell somebody else, you know, I understand how, you know, my house is wired up or like, I mean, not, not actually like the, the wiring inside your house, but how your house is connected to the grid. Um, And like, you know, and it'll make you think a little bit different about like the next time you drive past some, you know, monstrous transmission lines, you know, down the road, um, because it really is quite an incredible feat um, to have, you know, the electrification of an entire country just about. Um, So let's get on into it. All right. So. Uh, many of you have probably heard of most of the forms of generation in which we get our electricity, right? There's uh, coal burning plants, there's natural gas burning plants, there's, um, well, I, I guess there's a little bit of biomass, uh, there's nuclear uh, power plants, um, you have solar, you have wind, and some places you have geothermal, that's super niche, not extremely common in the u.s especially um you have solar thermal which is um not extremely common either and um and you have hydroelectric power and that makes up a large portion of how we get electricity so um excluding wind and solar all of these other concepts, well, wind and solar and solar thermal, um, all of these other concepts effectively work the exact same way. Um, the details obviously are different, but the overarching theme is very much the same. So 
most everything is a thermal power plant. And, and basically what that means is that you are generating large amounts of heat and then generating that heat and then through a series of, um, I guess what you could say, chemical and mechanical transformations, you inevitably get electricity. So what this means right is so you're familiar with like how coal plants are you know it's basically like a giant furnace or like a natural gas natural gas can be a little bit different because um they're generally uh combined cycle plants so there's actually like one one half of that plant works basically exactly like everything else and the other half um i i mean it also works similarly but it's at a little bit more in depth. Um, nuclear is uh, is obviously not burning, but it's using um, nuclear fission, which generates heat as a result of that chemical process um, that is then used as our as your heat source. So for the most part, all of these things you can consider them to be. Um, a black box that's just emitting heat. You don't really have to think too much about how that heat is created. Just like, let's just focus on a large amount of heat is being generated. I should also say really quickly to interject myself, uh, that, uh, hydro obviously doesn't burn anything, but, um, hydro base base. So basically hydro just skips a few steps here, but, um, eventually hydro is effectively the same as well. So, okay, so you're generating all this heat. Now, how do you turn this heat into electricity? Well, you don't directly. So the next thing that you do, right, is you use this heat uh, to boil water. In basically all of these cases, what these thermal plants do is they boil water. Um, in cases like a nuclear power plant, that water might actually run right through the reactor, uh, at least in a boiling water power plant, a pressurized water plant is a little bit different, uh, but a similar concept. Uh, or that water might be in some piping, basically, right near this giant, you know, that might be running through what is effectively this furnace. Um, and so in that piping, that water gets so hot and then it turns into steam, right? So now that that water is very high temperature steam. Um, and... Now, where does the steam go, right? The steam also, along with getting higher temperature, the pressure is going to start to increase a little bit, um, but largely, right, hot, and, and as you may remember from chemistry, right, hot wants to go towards less hot. So if there is hot, if you open a door, right, and it's hot outside and it's cold inside, that hot air is going to flow into the cold house um, or vice versa, right, in the winter. So... That hot air wants to move toward a colder location because um, sort of the nature of things, right, is that everything wants to hit equilibrium. So if there is somewhere colder to be, that's where that steam wants to go. So this steam is then has an opening to go somewhere. It goes through a turbine. A turbine just, if, if you don't recall, basically just a giant fucking propeller right? This big old sort of fan that spins. 
Well, the fan spins because on the other end of it is a colder area, right? It's uh, what is kind of is called a condenser. It, eventually, it goes into this condenser. So over there in the condenser, it's much colder. And so this hot steam is now going to flow through this turbine, causing it to spin to go over towards the condenser. Okay, so, right, we now, we're, our steam has transferred to the condenser. What a condenser is, is it, it's a, a way for the steam to have its heat move to yet something else. Um, and so in this case, the condenser um, is generally going to be some sort of like cold water piping. Uh, and that cold water piping will you know, be kind of basically in this chamber where the steam runs through it. When the steam runs through it, that heat is absorbed into the cold water piping. Cold, that cold water turns to hot water or steam. Um, generally, it, it actually turns into steam. And so now, again, that steam flows through that piping and goes out to some cooling towers. So, um, for example, you know, I, I guess sort of the iconic um, parabolic... Uh, I guess is that what they're called parabolic sort of uh, cooling towers that you see associated with like nuclear plants and you see them like puffing all this stuff out. That's steam. That's nothing more than steam. And that steam is uh, the, you know, all that cooling water, uh, which is generally why power plants are located near rivers or lakes or something like that is because they need a water source to uh, cool off what's running through their constant cycle and so that water sort of um, theoretically, right, it goes up in steam, it condenses up in the air, rains back down. So now that that, that steam has gone through the condenser, it in the process of condensing, um, as some of you may recall from chemistry class, con condensing is turning from gaseous to liquid. So this, that uh, steam condenses back into water. That water is then pumped back into the uh, into the heat source, into the you know quote unquote furnace or the nuclear reactor, and so it just kind of goes back through the cycle. So this is all a closed loop system of how this water is constantly going from water to steam to water, um, and so that's that's how that loop can continue to go and go and go. Uh, as long as right, you have some sort of way of keeping the heat going, and you have absolutely you have to um, provide some way of pumping the water. Um, so now you have that rotating turbine we talked about, right? So now that rotating turbine is spinning. You know that fan is spinning, and that fan is connected to like a rod. That and it's usually like a, a usually we're talking like a big like very large metal rod so now this metal rod is now spinning this is where we actually get to what is called the generator so uh this metal rod is referred to as the rotor in a most uh generator designs 
this metal rod, whatever's spinning is called the rotor, while whatever's staying still is called the stator. Um, and so in this case, it's that rod, so that rod is the rotor. Uh, and that's going to be spinning inside of this stator, which is effectively a, a big metal cage with uh, a bunch of copper windings um, or some sort of conductor. It, generally, it's copper. It could be aluminum. And these windings are wound around the uh, armature in such a way that it uh, they're basically in specific um, radial degrees away from each other. Um, so to inevitably get a 120 degree difference in the phases, because these uh, windings eventually represent your phases, um, which you may or may not have ever heard of when it comes to electricity, of three-phase power, uh, your A, B, and C phases, as they're most commonly known. Uh, it's why uh, a lot of have three conductors. So, the and, you know, there'll be three wires that are, you know, separated from each other. Um, sometimes it could be multiple groupings of wires, um, but it's always going to be three either groupings or singular conductors along that uh, power line. Uh, I mean, there could there, you can see cases, I guess, of single phase, um, but generally, a lot of times, what you're going to see is three phase. Um, so, you have these windings in the stator. You have this rotating rod that's in inside of that stator cage, and now you're saying, okay, so. What we've done, right, is we've changed, uh, we've used these chemical processes of conduct combustion, uh, and then we turned combustion into vaporizing liquid water into its gaseous form. So, and then that gas moving through, it having motion, uh, kinetic energy associated with its flow, and then spinning a turbine as a result. So it's transferring its kinetic energy into the kinetic energy of this fan, which is attached to this rod. So the rod similarly has this same kinetic energy associated with it. So we've had chemical turn into mechanical. And so now we have this mechanical uh, energy associated with the rotation of this rod. Now this, this rotor is going to have a in most cases a dc current applied to it the rotor actually could also be made of a permanent magnet um but that's generally in smaller use cases um so at like a large-scale generator it's likely got a dc current a direct current running through it so now what this dc current running through the rotor does is it causes the rotor to have a magnetic field. Whenever you have a current, you have an associated magnetic field. Um, similarly, whenever you have a voltage, you have an electric field. And that's why you might have heard of like electromagnetic fields or electromagnetic fields and waves. Um, because as Ohm's law says, V equals IR. So as long as the resistance is either not zero and not infinite, i.e. short circuit or open circuit, then if there's a current, there must be a voltage, vice versa. Um, 
So we, and and that's why I, I to be clear, an an electric field and a magnetic field are related, or they they both must exist. Um, they can exist in different magnitudes. Like if your current is very high and your voltage is very low, then your magnetic field is going to be much higher and your electric field much lower and vice versa. So you have this magnetic field associated with this rotor. This magnetic field uh, rotates along with the rotor. Um, And so the rotation of this magnetic field causes uh, a changing magnetic field across those windings we were talking about in the stator. So this is what's called uh, Faraday's law of induction, which says that a changing magnetic field across a conductor will cause an electromotive force in that conductor. Now, for all intents and purposes, all you need to do is think of electromotive force as voltage. Uh, They're interchangeable. Um, So you've created this voltage along this conductor. And so as long as it's connected to something, right, as I said, V equals IR, you have this voltage, you have a current. So now you have power. And so this magnetic field, like I mentioned before, how those windings are specifically um, separated from each other radially, which just means a distance along a circle. Because remember, this cage is entirely around this rotor. So... um, you could actually have like the phases in multiple poles. It, it depends on how many poles that you have. Um, but it, all of those poles will inevitably be associated with three phases, A, B, and C. Um, and so because of their separation, they will have that um, magnetic field change across it at different times, which causes an alternation in the amount of current and voltage on that conductor. Um, And so that is how you have now an alternating current or an AC system. So as that magnetic field spins across the conductor, it'll have some electromotive force associated with it. And then once that field is passed entirely through it, uh, that will go away. It'll drop to zero. Um, and remember, like I said, a changing magnetic field. So, uh, when the magnetic field is constant, just to be clear, if the magnetic field is constant across that wire, so you say like, take this slice in time where it's constant across the wire, that wire will not experience any electromotive force because the the electric, the magnetic field is constant. So, um, to kind of maybe visualize this, like if you took like, if you drilled like a hole in a table, let's say, and then you wrapped a uh, piece of copper, uh, like a copper wire around in a circle around that hole. And if you dropped a magnet through that copper wire, you would detect a uh, current or a voltage and a current on that wire when that magnet drops through. Now, specifically you would see it as the magnet begin you know as once the magnetic field is close enough such that it's felt on the wire so now it's gone from zero to not zero so that was a change and then 
assuming let's say that this mag this magnet is a constant field uh it it's magnetic field is constant the whole way across the magnet you would then go to being at a non-zero but constant magnetic field as you know let's say that magnet has fallen halfway through the wire so now that wire is not feeling any sort of electromotive force and then once that magnet has fallen through to the other edge where the the back edge of that magnet is now falling through so now you're going to go from that non-zero magnetic for magnetic field to zero and so that's a changing magnetic field and therefore you will see that uh, electromotive force associated with that change in magnetic field so that's more in depth than you need it was just hopefully that gives a little bit of a visualization visualization of what i was talking about in terms of um faraday's law of induction so now you have this power on your windings right and now those windings will be connected to some conductors that then run out from the generator so now you've you you understand how a generator works you uh i mean obviously there is a litany of details that go into uh the speed of the generator the torque of the generator um all of which you know is mathematically described but there's no need i think for us to go into the weeds there that gives you the basic understanding of how you've gone from what started as combustion turned into vaporization turned into kinetic energy turned into electricity so now you have this um, voltage and current that are coming out of this generator right now um this can be different depending on the generator of how much voltage and current how much power so um the other thing other equation to recall nice and simple also is that p equals iv uh, power equals voltage times current now this is specifically real power um we'll discuss um because you probably heard real power and thought to yourself why the fuck would you need to tell me that the power is real as opposed to imaginary power uh and as you might be saying that with some sort of jest yes there is something called reactive power that is also effectively known as imaginary power um and so we don't need to get super into that but that that is something that exists so that is why i specifically said p which stands for real power and that real power is v times i voltage times current so you have this power and now this power is related to how much power has been generated from the heat generation uh or whatever heat source um sorry okay i'm i'm back i had to take a slight pause i um went and grabbed a beer a rising haze ipa from highland brewing maybe that's what i gotta do is like i gotta incorporate beer and science with ron okay sorry back to it so uh, the amount of power that's output from the generator is related to the amount of power that's input to the generator with some losses. There are, it's not a perfect source. Uh, so if, you know, there's going to be losses of heat into the piping, uh, heat into the air, 
uh, heat into the insulation. Uh, there's losses in the turbine's rotation due to vibration and sound. And, um, and then there's losses associated with magnetic losses in the uh, transformation that's going on at the rotor and stator. And then there's losses in the windings themselves. So um, so that's all to say that the power that is input from the heat, right, that, that heat is energy. And however much energy was put in, the amount of power in watts that um, – or, uh, yeah, in – in watts that you're seeing come out of the generator will be less than the amount of energy that went into the heating and and whatnot, right? Whatever you burned, whatever fuel you burned, you burned more of than the amount of power you actually got. So, um, so that comes out with some voltage, some current. Uh, it's large largely fairly irrelevant it, it could be as high as 30 33,000 volts that's coming out but so you have the uh standardization then from that point which is where a, a transformer comes into play now this generator is going to do exactly what its name implies it's going to transform the electricity now uh it's going to take this you know whatever voltage it may be that's 30,000 volts or whatever and in the case at the power plant, this is a very custom transformer because what it's going to do is it's then going to raise the voltage, which V equals IR, remember. So if it raises the voltage, it lowers the current at an exactly relate at a directly related amount. Uh, so if you increase the voltage by 10, you're decreasing the current by 10 um, in like an ideal scenario. So uh, obviously there becomes losses along the way that decreases efficiency and it may not be a perfect one for one but it's effectively supposed to be at this that ratio so um what that's going to do is it's going to standardize it to a certain transmission uh voltage which in the u.s it's very common to see 765 kv 76 765,000 volts is what that is 500 kv 500,000 volts um, 138 kV is also a fairly common one, 138,000 volts. Um, and so those are your more common transmission voltages. So like when you see like those really big towers, um, you know, transmission towers and like the, the lines on them, those are those high voltage, usually of those voltage class transmission lines. Um, if you ever like happen to be near a power plant, drive by one, you'll see those lines and there's some beefy motherfuckers. Uh, if you actually see, like I've seen those cables, like up close, those a ACSR cables, uh, and, and they can be absolute behemoths in size, um, because they're carrying a lot of power. Um, and so you're now at this higher voltage the purpose of getting to this higher voltage is that uh you have less line losses so you have less resistive losses uh when your current is lower um it's because the the losses associated with are with current are uh equal to i squared r uh current squared times 
resistance. So obviously, if you lower the current a little bit, you lower your resist your uh, resistive losses a lot, and vice versa. If you raise your current a little bit, you increase your losses by a lot. Right? It's an exponential rate. So it is in your best interest to get the voltage as high as possible and the current as low as possible to reduce the amount of losses on the line, which makes it more efficient. Um, now there's obviously there are drawbacks to high voltage systems. Uh, high voltage AC systems, especially, um, but they are better than the alternative, which would be to be at a lower voltage class for long, long distances. You would have massive voltage drop across the system, uh, which would make losses enormous and also make the distribution system extremely unstable because your voltage levels would, would vary a lot. So a, a very quick crash course of how the transformer makes this transformation right and so this is the transformer turns ratio is on your primary side in this case your primary side being uh that output from the generator the there's going to be these uh coils these windings um and they'll be along this uh generally a iron core uh it can be another ferromagnetic material but uh like an iron core is pretty common. And so it'll be wound around this iron core on one side of it. Uh, think of it like, if you will, for easier visual visualization, think of it like a, a rectangle uh, or like a square, but like the inside of the square has been cut out. So it's sort of like a square donut of iron. And so on one side of that square you'll have the primary windings. And so it's literally, it's wrapped around that end of the core. And uh, it'll be wrapped some amount of times, say it's wrapped around it 10 times. Well, then on the secondary side, which is going to be the output of the transformer going toward, you know, towards the distribution network. Um, Look at me as I point my hand in a direction that nobody can see right now, as if this is helping anybody. But so on, on that other side, you have that secondary uh, coil, and that coil needs to be turned at some ratio um, multiplied above the ratio on the primary side, depending on how high you want it to go. So, uh, for example, right, let's say just for easy numbers, let's say that the generator is outputting 30,000 volts and you want to step it up to 300,000 volts, well, then you need a ratio of 10, right, on the turns ratio. So the secondary side coils need to be 10 times, you need to have 10 times more wrapping of the coil um, on the secondary side as you do on the primary side. So in, in this case, um, you know, if you had 10... 10 wraps on uh or 10 turns on the primary side then you need 100 turns on the secondary side and so that turns ratio gives you the factor at which you adjust your um, voltage so obviously what's helpful about a very standardized system is that transformers get to be very standardized right because if your system voltages are all common then you only need, you know, a select few sets of transformer turns ratios. 
But that's why at the generator, it can be much more custom because the voltage that's specifically coming out of the generator can be um, quite variable from generator to generator. But you know that you want to get to, say, 765,000 volts. And so whatever your output is, you need to have some turns ratio that then multiplies it up to that 765. So that's where it can the the turns ratio can be a little bit more customized versus a lot of times you'll just you could go to any electrical supplier and they could give you a um you know a uh 13.8 kv or uh 13,800 volts down to 480 volt transformer um or a 480 volt down to 208 or a 120 or whatever right so the, all these standardized ratios make it, or or a transformer to drop from seven hundred sixty-five thousand to thirty-five thousand. Um, all of these ratios, so that you don't have to make a different turns ratio all the time. Um, so that's the basics of how a transformer works. We're not going to get, we're not going to go any farther than that. Uh, they are quite an interesting uh, piece of um, equipment. Uh, anything further than that, I think that we're going to get too stuck in the weeds, right? So now we have this transmission voltage. We're on the transmission lines, and we're off onto the grid. We are now on the grid. Um, and so now you're going to go on these large lines going to wherever. You may you might be going right nearby, depending on if you're in like a city or a rural area where the power plant's located compared to where it's servicing. So uh, from there, you're going to go to some substation. And you've definitely seen a substation in your life. And and if you think that you haven't, just pay attention. The next time you're driving along, you'll probably see where there's like what looks like this sort of like gravel yard or something like that next to the road with all this machinery. And you see some uh, or, you know, all this equipment and these, you'll notice that the power lines start coming into and out of that substation where like, you'll see what looks almost like, um, you'll see like the transmission lines are connecting to what almost looks like a, like an, an accordion like kind of piece of equipment, uh, that then attaches down to something else usually down to a transformer um, because at the substation is where you'll drop down from that distribution voltage uh, that you know high high voltage distribution down to like say a medium voltage distribution maybe 35,000 volts uh, maybe 600 volts depends on on where but usually between uh, 600 and 35,000 is considered like medium voltage and so somewhere in there you're going to have that step down that transformer is then going to feed into um a series of switches largely being just that uh like switches as in um basically like it's going to feed a bus bar so think just this big hunk of copper um that is then going to have multiple uh cables or buses uh connected to it uh along with uh circuit breakers for each of those specific um 
cables. And so from there, you can have this one bus bar that then feeds out to, say, eight branches. And those branches will then go back up onto some sort of, uh, you know, electrical poles and be off on their way to whatever nearby neighborhood or apartment complex or whatever. And then, you know, it'll get to your neighborhood and you'll see like on the transmission lines around your neighborhood that there is this big sort of gray cylinder that's on the pole and that's your transformer. You've probably seen that. And so this is the same thing we were talking about earlier, but obviously a much smaller transformer. Usually they're like uh, like a 50 kVA transformer. So kVA um, is a power rating, and it's specifically um, a parent power rating. And this is why, uh, like I was talking about before, of how there's uh, real power, which is in watts, and then there's apparent power which is in va which is volt amps uh which you're thinking oh well isn't that what watts are well yeah but because there's a relationship between apparent power real power and reactive power which is that sort of quote-unquote imaginary power i was speaking of earlier um which Basically, all you need to know is that reactive power is a part of what helps it. It it's a very difficult balancing act with the the reactive power. So to produce it um, requires either uh, capacitor banks or synchronous condensers, um, both of which will pr- produce reactive power onto the grid, and then. Um, what consumes it is basically anything that is a not a purely resistive circuit. So anything with a capacitor or an inductor in it. So your small small electronics like will consume some reactive power. Um, your especially because most of your small electronics have a uh, converter in it or an inverter in it to bring uh, that AC power down into a smaller DC power. And so there's um, a reactive power associated with that uh, that also leads to harmonics on the grid, which is far beyond where we need to go as far as harmonics go. But uh, like a fan in your uh, house uses reactive power. Now, generally, the fan in your house has a little capacitor in it. So you don't actually need to get reactive power from the grid because reactive power is expensive um but say at a large power like a large factory where they may have very large uh motors or fans or uh you know pumps anything of that sort that requires a lot of reactive power associated with it and so that's what brings into this thing called power factor so um like I said, right, there's a relationship between real power, reactive power, and apparent power. And so that relationship is um, can be visualized as a triangle. So if you were to think about a like a right triangle, um, your bottom, you could think of like the bottom edge or the bottom side of that triangle, you'd say is your real power. And then... Um, if you're drawing it such that, you know, at, at the outer side, 
outer edge of that bottom side, you kind of go up for some amount, and that's your reactive power. And then the hypotenuse of those two sides is your apparent power. And the angle between your real power and your apparent power is your uh, power factor. And so what you want to do is have some power factor that's um, within what you would say is like 0.95. It's actually cosine. So it's cosine of the angle itself. If you remember from like trigonometry, your cosine and sine. So cosine of that angle gets you your power factor, which um, is some value between zero and one. Uh, well, I should say between negative one and one, uh, but in this case, zero and one. Um, and so you want something that's like a 0.95. You want pretty close to unity, which is one. So if you're in unity, power factor of one, then your real power and your apparent power are the same thing. And that's where, for many of you, that's all you've ever seen it as. But in this case, it can not be. Transformers also use reactive power. Um, but anyways, that was just a little bit of a tangent, but that's why when you see on that transformer, you may even see like some stickers on it. It'll say 50, like KVA. That's what that stands for is that's the rating of the transformer and it's rated on its apparent power capacity, not its real power capacity. Um, and so then at that transformer, you'll see like, it'll have a couple lines out to like, you know, the house, your house, the house across the street, the house next door, it'll be feeding a couple of houses right there. And then, you know, if you go further down the road, you'll see that the power line there's on another pole, there's another transformer on it. It's feeding a couple other houses. And so, right, that power line coming into your house, comes in, comes down, comes to your main power panel where there's some main break. Well, before it actually gets to your main power panel, right, it goes to your meter, which you've seen. It runs through your meter, and that runs to the main breaker on the panel in your house. And so from the main breaker, right, you now have all your sub breakers, um, all your branch breakers for, you know, whatever. And uh, if you're like me... Uh, the house that I bought didn't have any of the breakers labeled. So I have no idea where the fuck any of my breakers are tied to. And I have not put the time in to actually label them myself, but you may know, you know, right. You can turn this breaker off and it'll turn off the lights in the kitchen or whatever. And so similarly, like when I was talking about the substation before, where say maybe there's, you know, eight, eight separate branches on that bus bar with their circuit breakers, it also similarly allows you to turn off the power at, say, one of those br um, branches without having to turn off the power at all of those branches. Similar, right, is like if you needed to, say, turn off the power in your um, office for some reason in your house or, you know, whatever. Turn off the power because you're putting in a new oven, so you need to turn off the power to your oven uh, that's in your kitchen, you can flip that breaker and everything else in your house gets to stay on. You don't have to flip your main breaker at your house, um, which is why you segment the loads as much as possible, right? So, or if you have like a short circuit or something happens, uh, you don't blow everything in your house. You just blow the, the circuit that that's tied to. So, um, you know, and from there, your house wired up, uh, it really depends on the age of your house, um, but usually 
uh, a room may have one to two circuits associated with it. The majority of the outlets will all be on the same circuit. In some cases, they may you may have half on one circuit, half on the other. Uh, if you had a really good electrician, they can actually set it up so that, um, like, you know how your outlet, usually it's two plugs, how you could have it set up where the top plug is... Um, one circuit and the bottom plug is another circuit and you can do that across and, and daisy chain that across all of yours uh, which is a very cool way of doing it right so that when you plug in to that outlet it's actually feeding off of two different breakers because the one important thing too to remember is right is that outlet you may think of as in most cases it's a 20 amp outlet right well it's a 20 amp total outlet right because that breaker it's tied to is a 20 amp total breaker. So if you plug 10 amps into the top and 10 amps into the bottom, you're probably going to pop your breaker. Um, so it's not, oh, I can plug in, you know, 18 on the top and 18 on the bottom or, you know, whatever, because each one's 20. It's the whole thing is 20 because the upstream breaker is 20. And so... That's why it can be nice if you actually have them set up so that they're ones on one circuit, ones on the other, because then they actually are uh, each capable of uh, withstanding 20 amps. So that is basically the gist of how your power gets from the generator to uh, in, in like a thermal plant setting, right? And so we can circle back around a little bit here and discuss about the other forms of transmission. So I had mentioned, right, that hydroelectric uh, is basically the same, but it skips some steps. And how it skips some steps, right, is hydroelectric uses water to spin that turbine that I talked about before. As you recall, right, you, you get that steam, it runs through the turbine, spins the turbine as it's on its way to the condenser. Well, in the case of hydroelectric right that you have water maybe that's being held up at a dam or has been pumped up to some higher elevation so that it'll flow down um that'll run through that turbine that water will cause the the spinning turbine because that water is moving from um a higher elevation to a lower elevation so instead of it being the process of uh hot moving towards less hot uh or you know hot moving to you know heat moving to the condenser in this case you have uh gravity do the work for you and so that water um being forced by gravity down through this turbine will then spin the turbine and then from there everything else is the same as far as the you know spinning turbine and um and then you know how that turns into the rotor and then the stator and then to inevitably electricity. Um, and one thing I actually forgot to mention earlier that is, I guess, of somewhat of, of interest, right, as I mentioned the rotor and stator again, is I'd mentioned, right, that a DC voltage, assuming it's not a permanent magnet, that is applied to that rotor. So I want you to take a second because, right, I, I said that this, I've said it like a thousand times here. I know it's, you're probably like, oh my God, I heard you, the rotor ro is rotating. But so that rotor is spinning, right? So uh, 
how do you think a DC current is being run on it? Right. Because you can't just like plug some wires into it on some, you know, plug a battery up and, and plug, you know, some wires to it. Right. Because it would just spin until the wires snapped off. So take a second to think about that. Okay. So the way that works is there's actually two ways of doing it. Uh, one way is older and not as commonly used anymore um, that uses um, brushes and slip rings. And so in, in this case, you would have some uh, DC source um, that is generally powered from the grid, which is you know, kind of like a chicken of the egg thing, right? So how do you have this power from the grid to power the generator or to provide some input power to the generator so that the generator can power the grid, right? So, um, and that's why the permanent magnets come into play because if, say, you had a total grid blackout, right, you had no available electricity, well, you couldn't use the grid to then turn on your generator, right? So permanent magnet allows for you to have a magnetic field without applying a DC voltage, which allows you to kind of get a startup going. So anyways, right. So um, you have this DC source that is applying voltage onto these brushes, um, which, I mean, used to actually quite literally look like just brushes made of copper wire. And on that rotor, as it's spinning, it has these like copper rings uh, like fused onto it. And so those copper rings are spinning and they're constantly being brushed by the brushes, which keeps a constant point of uh, electrical contact so that you could get DC current from this uh, static source, the source that is staying still onto this rotating object. Um, so that's uh, brushes and slip rings. Now brushes actually kind of look almost like a, um, almost like a rod because it's like some, you know, very smart metallurgy, metallurgy people, people who work with materials, uh, were able to come up with like this carbon and copper infused material that is like better than the brushes were because there's less sparking and all this. But um, anyways, it looks just kind of like a rod that's kind of being pushed down onto it. And so it's almost like you think about like, though, right, the, the setback is, is if you kind of think about if you just had like a pencil and you just kept sort of running your pencil along paper and say like you had an infinitely long paper, eventually your pencil would just sort of like run out, right? And so you eventually have to replace them because they just, they kind of get rubbed down. So now a somewhat more common way of electrical uh, commutation is that it's almost like there's a... Uh, Min miniature uh, generator in the generator, right? So there might be some windings on the generator or on the armature of that stator that are then getting power from the grid in this case. And then those in turn create, if, if you have like a small, like if you have a small um, DC rectifier, that's actually mounted onto the shaft. Um, you can then have this small um, AC current that's applied onto 
the circuits on the shaft that feed into that rectifier, which outputs DC current, and that DC current is then applied onto the rotor itself. Um, or if you didn't actually want to get power from the grid to do it, right, so that you actually have some sort of excitation that is um, not grid dependent, then instead you would have to have a small permanent magnet um, that would then allow for um, that uh, excitation to be uh, performed. So um, I just wanted to kind of get that through there. I, it's just kind of like it's more in-depth than necessary, but it is kind of something that it actually like – even in school, I didn't originally learn anything about it. Like I had learned, right, that there's this field current that's applied to the rotor. Um, but I was always like, well, how is it applied? It's like it's, things fucking rotating. Um, and so I was like, how does that work? But anyways, so, right, hydropower is similar in that regard. It still leads to a spinning turbine that drives a rotor, that drives um, – a magnetic field into the stator and then electricity. Now, um, wind also, uh, works similarly, but wind doesn't is, um, is like an, in, an induction generator as opposed to all, everything else we've talked about is a synchronous generator, which means that, um, the generator has a synchronous speed. And so, um, that generator, like the speed at which that rotator is rotating, the RPMs on that rotor is always going to be the same. You want it to just stay at synchronous speed, which means that if you need to increase the power, you need to increase the torque, not the speed. There's You're not doing any changing of speed. But on an induction generator, the speed is not constant and the speed is not um, at synchronous. It's actually going to be uh, what slightly, well, in an induction generator, slightly above synchronous, right? And so, um, and the other thing, because, and the reason being, right, is the wind is somewhat erratic, it's not constant, so you can't really get a constant spin. So you can't use a synchronous generator model when you can't guarantee a synchronous speed. And so in, in that regard, the induction generator, um, is different and as i talked about before with reactive power is it requires reactive power to start that um turbine up because it needs to start consuming reactive power until it reaches the point at which it actually goes up above the synchronous speed and becomes a generator um and so in that case its excitation is through the, that uh, reactive power coming in from the grid so at first it's actually that uh wind turbine is going to consume power and then it'll turn around and start to produce it once it gets up to speed. Now, solar um, works in a obviously much different uh, route in which uh, your solar panels are all semiconductors and, and they're pretty much all crystalline silicon. Now, crystalline silicon is a Semiconductor that is what is called a indirect semiconductor, which means it's not efficient at all. Um, but the problem is, is 
direct semiconductors are really fucking expensive, at least right now. So they, while being extremely efficient, are not cost efficient. And so that's why we use this crystalline silicon, which um, actually right now to produce it is somewhat carbon intensive. So um, it's, it's not really a perfect solution. But so an indirect semiconductor means that um, what, so what a semiconductor means, period, right, is so you have basically two ends of this conductor. Think of it like that is you have two ends of this conductor and a uh, what you would say is like a dielectric in between. So a dielectric means something that can conduct, but not always. Um, it's something that's capable of conducting under the right circumstances. In this case, the circumstances being that the energy needs to be high enough, uh, and energy is usually measured in electron volts, needs to be high enough to overcome that, um, quote-unquote, band gap. And so what that means, right, is that in the case of, like, solar, that photon that comes in, which... Um, I mean, you've probably heard of photons. They're a, they're sort of a, I think that they're just kind of like a good way of creating a visualization of a wave. Cause like, so a photon is not like a, it's not like an object, right? I think when you hear photon, you think of it like, it's like this little, almost like you think of an electron or a proton, right? As if it's like this little, like, you know, whatever fucking orb, right? That's like traveling along uh of a photon is just a wave and that wave has energy associated with it and so if that wave has enough energy then that wave will cause an electron to cross that gap um of the semiconductor which by the electron crossing the gap you have produced electricity right and so you need all these photons to come in and give enough energy. They'll, you know, they'll basically, they'll hit, you know, they'll hit these electrons. They'll, these electrons will get enough energy to cross this gap. And so, um, and this is where you get in the concept of electrons and holes, which we don't, we won't go that far, but um, just to break it down, right, is this electron needs enough energy to cross this gap. Uh, if you think about it, like if you need to jump between two buildings or something, right? Like if you don't jump far enough, you won't make it. And then you just kind of fall off into the abyss or, you know, into the nearby street. But if you have enough energy, you know, in your jump, enough power in your, in your jump, you'll cross the two buildings and move along. And so, that's kind of what's happening here with that electron acquires enough energy in in the form of in the unit of electron volts to cross this band gap. Now, indirect semiconductors are because the band gap is actually such that on the two conducting um, planes, if you will, trying to keep this simplified, not we don't need to go too far uh, into this. Um, the two conducting planes, right, they have a um, a curve associated with it that, and, and that curve being uh, on a graph of 
on your say your x axis being uh, momentum and your y axis being energy right so at uh, some amount of energy and some amount of momentum you um, your sort of corresponding uh, valence band or conduction band is is at a certain point along this right so um, in the case of a direct semiconductor the lowest point of your conduction band is in line with the highest point of your valence band meaning so at some point of momentum and energy your valence band is the most capable of sending right is sort of like has the right amount of uh of available energy in its electrons that are available to give and your conduction band is in a place where it has um holes available uh holes that want to be filled if you will uh at it's sort of its easiest time right it's it's most capable of allowing an electron to come in and so in a direct band gap those two things align that highest point of the valence band that lowest point of the conduction band are directly aligned with each other which means that um as long as you have the right amount of energy you can cross there's no there's no issue now in an indirect semiconductor those those two points that high and low point do not match which means that along and, and they do not match in uh because the x-axis is the momentum right they don't match along the x-axis so if you think about like this sort of I mean, the best way that you, to visualize this is just look up uh, direct and indirect band gaps um, into Google, and you'll see like pictures of of what they look like in in terms of the graph. It's very hard to explain this um, in a way that's going to make sense. I, I think so. I, I would encourage you to look at that, and it'll all make much more sense what I'm talking about um, as far as that graph is concerned. But so in that indirect band gap, it means that those two points are separated by some amount of momentum. So it's not just that this electron needs enough energy to cross the gap. This electron needs enough energy and enough momentum and, and enough and some sort of assistance with momentum um, to cross the gap. So this means that this basically that this electron needs to not only interact with a photon, but it needs to interact with a phonon, as it's called, which is sort of just basically um, within the crystal lattice of the semiconductor. It, you could think of it like it bounces off of something. Um, say, think about like uh, when a baseball hits a baseball bat type of thing. And so that connection of the two that sort of that rebounding sort of momentum shift gives that electron then enough uh, momentum along with it's already having enough energy to then cross to uh, the conduction band. Um, that again is very in the weeds, but that's why uh, silicon, at least crystalline silicon, is not a good semiconductor as far as the available options go and it's why 
um, solar panels have to be so thick is because you need to have a a greater thickness so that that electron has a better chance of interacting with the crystal lattice in such a way that allows it to cross, create that, um, uh, that crossing of the band gaps for the electron. So, um, because like for like a direct semiconductor actually it could basically be like a film i mean think like nanometers thick uh or at least micrometers thick and it would be able to conduct uh sunlight very very well um and so that's why hopefully there's investment in that technology but the problem is is that it uses very rare materials um that are very hard to acquire so it's a very much a limited resources problem but so that electron crossing the band gap is what creates electricity in the solar panel that is then, um, you know, conducted out from some cables that connect to, um, in, in basically all, all cases, that solar panel then connects to an, uh, a converter that's going to turn that because what comes out of a DC or what comes out of a solar panel is DC power. So that DC power needs to be transferred into AC power. So it goes through uh, a converter, which is basically um, it's these uh, all these fast switching transistors, right? And so what they're doing is they're taking this DC voltage and they're switching it on and off. Think about like if you sat there and you were switching a light on and off like super, super fast. And basically what it does is it switches it on and off in in this way that like event you basically get this, um, you know, this alternating current and alternating voltage that's basically like this really, really fine chopping of the on and off of the DC uh, voltage that's coming out. And then, so now you have this AC power, and then that AC power will then go into a transformer to then go onto the grid. Um, now, the difficult part about those converters, it's very, it's very fine, uh, small, like, technology, so it's sensitive to... Uh, it's sensitive to a electromagnetic interference, but it's also sensitive to if there's like a surge on the grid, it, it's just going to turn off because like, it'll just, you'll just blow the ver- converter altogether. Um, sorry, I should, I keep saying converter. It It's, re- it's generally called an inverter. So I apologize. Um, but I mean, that's getting into the minutia of the, the terminology, which I apologize where I was saying converter for those who are more well-versed in this topic. They're probably like, it's a fucking inverter, you jackass. Um, but I think converter, as far as the language goes, is easier to like, when you hear converter, you're thinking it's making a conversion. Inverter can make it a little bit more convoluted in terms of like what I'm talking about. But it's called an inverter, but it's converting the DC voltage into AC voltage. And so, um, that sensitive electronics, like it, it can't actually handle like a, a, a power surge, right? It can't produce more. There's no, it's only going to produce whatever 
the sunlight that's being absorbed and transformed and 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 so on there is no higher gear right and as opposed to with a at like something with a rotating machinery uh with some source right you can up the torque and and therefore be able to um meet the demands of the power on the grid uh which creates a very interesting issue when it comes to overall um grid stability because it's not only being able to handle a power surge but what power surges represent from um frequency on the grid right so um the grid is all operating at a frequency in the united states because right i said when i talk about like alternating voltage and current what i'm talking about is that the voltage and the current have a sinusoidal waveform uh meaning that they have some frequency associated with them right where uh if you remember a sine wave right starts at zero goes up to some maximum falls back down to zero crosses down to a negative of that maximum um and then back up to zero right and so that has a frequency with how long does it take to get to one full waveform in the united states that frequency is 60 hertz in europe it's 50 hertz I actually don't, I don't really know why they are that way, what the origins of those two numbers are, but that's how they are and that's how we operate. So um, in the U.S., we're at 60 hertz, right? And so um, frequency plays an extremely important role on the grid. Be, like the grid has to stay at 60 hertz. Uh, if you vary off of the grid that frequency too much, you'll start to damage equipment. Um, you'll start to have rolling blackouts because... Uh, circuit protective circuit protection equipment like circuit breakers and relays will uh, that that uh, increase or decrease in frequency will make that equipment think that there is a uh, short on the grid and it's going to trip and equipment's just going to start tripping out and tripping out um, for the purposes of protecting against something that's not actually happening right and so um, so gr- the frequency staying at 60 is really, really important on the grid. And so uh, in the United States or in Europe, it's really important to stay at 50. And so what's really helpful about the thermal plants or uh, the nuclear generators or the hydroelectric generators, right, is that rotational equipment has an inertia associated, right? That rotor that I kept talking about spinning has inertia, right? It wants to continue to spin. And so when there's a change in the uh, grid frequency, right, because of some short on the grid or um, some, you know, if a large amount of power is either um, as far as load goes, right, like say a factory turns on or turns off. So if like a large amount of load either turns on or turns off on the grid, you'll at that moment have some sort of instantaneous difference in how much power the grid's producing versus how much power the grid needs to produce and so that you always want to have that number at zero otherwise you create a uh, a disturbance in the frequency on the grid and so for that instantaneous moment right you turn some large factory on and suddenly there's a massive power jump of demand on the grid which is then going to cause maybe a slight voltage sag on the grid um 
But then grid operators have gotten really good at a predicting when loads are supposed to turn on, and ha- and so they have um, various generators available on standby, basically. And so, like the moment that something adds onto the grid, boom, a generator is on, or there's um, battery sources that are specifically on to provide supplemental power um, to make sure that 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 instantaneous difference doesn't remain anything more than instantaneous, right? That the grid is producing exactly how much power it's supposed to produce based on how much demand there is, which when you think about it is an exceptionally complicated situation because think about how many times you turn on your oven or your dryer or the air conditioning kicks on in your house, right? Well, in, in your that's very little blips on the radar, but if you think about thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people where that's happening on a daily basis, well, that adds up to an enormous swing of power on the grid. So anyways, the rotational um, inertia of that generator slows the uh, effect of a frequency change on the grid so the frequency can only change so much because that generator's rotational inertia is such that it wants to continue to rotate as it was which means that the frequency and since that there's frequency is tied to that rotation it it can't change very quickly but in the case of say with solar where you don't have anything rotating that lack of rotation, all you have is these uh, inverters that are just, you know, switching the um, current and voltage at this frequency. Um, there's nothing that's really holding the grid still on 60 hertz. So if there's that big change in power, um, that causes it that. Um, the solar farms aren't actually going to hold help hold the grid at its current um, frequency. The grid's going to start to sag or swell in terms of the uh, frequency seen on the grid. And so that's a very uh, difficult challenge. Um, and I, I mean, if you wanted to read more on sort of like this, uh, a, there's a study um, called, uh, the impact of low rotational inertia on power system stability and operation that was written by Andreas Olbig, uh, Theodore S. Borsch, and Guerin Anderson uh, at the Power Systems Laboratory in Zurich, Switzerland. Uh, it was written back in December of 2014. I, you can find it on arxiv.org. Um but if you just like Googled uh, effects of rotational inertia on grid stability, you can find a lot of information on this um, and how um, having inertia is another important factor for keeping the grid uh, stable. And so this is why actually what's currently happening right in California where uh, obviously not, not the fires, but uh, how California was having rolling blackouts recently because of um, extremely high demand because it was so hot and so air conditioning's running and just because of how much demand was being um, pulled onto the grid in California, 
that they were having to have rolling blackouts in order to make sure the whole grid didn't black out. And, you know, like they had to turn off, they had to force some of the loads off by tripping the, you know, the breakers to those branches or those neighborhoods, whatever, so that the whole, the whole grid, the grid as a whole didn't shut down. And I don't, I don't know for sure, but I fear that a part of that problem may have been because of the fact that um, California has now gone really heavily into solar. Um, And I mean, it's understandable, right? Like, I'm not here to argue, like, why they went towards solar because they felt like it was a a good way of mitigating carbon, Um, although there's some issues associated with solar as far as as i mentioned earlier it's actually somewhat carbon intensive to produce solar panels and then um you know they have to be replaced and what do you do with the the solar panels after they're they need to be replaced um but right it's the concept of if you start to create investment in the technology it'll get better i understand right i'm I'm not here to argue it like this isn't a, a climate argument this is a uh, in a grid argument, and that the so because California has become so solar heavy, and there's been some you know studies that uh, similar to like the one I I just pointed out, where if you reach a certain threshold of how much power is coming from solar, um, your grid becomes really unstable, and so any fluctuations are going to create massive. Um, unrest in the grid in terms of frequency and so because california has turned off a lot of nuke and nuclear plants and coal plants i fear that california may be running into the issue where it a it doesn't have a lot of availability for um additional power right because what's really good about nuclear for example is it provides an enormous amount of baseload power which then allows for your other power producers to become standby Um, now the problem is, is like a coal plant is not a very good standby generator. Natural gas plants are very good standby generators. Uh, they can, you can spin them up really quickly. Um, solar is a good one during the day, uh, when, you know, and in California's case, right, it's rarely rainy or cloudy. So generally speaking, solar is really good for meeting, uh, peak, helping meet peak demand very quickly. Um, but as a base load, it's tough because there's no higher gear, right? There is no way of really maximizing the output of solar. It's just, it's whatever the output is, that's what it is. Um, I mean, obviously at like a power plant, there is some cap, right? You like if a power plant's like a two megawatt or a two gigawatt plant, um, it's not going to produce more than that. Although I, I believe that it could over under short duration any longer and, and you would be, running into issues of damaging equipment but um the point being is even if it's a two gigawatt plant it's probably not running at two gigawatts but its maximum capacity is such so under um high load circumstances it can increase its output um and so i fear that part of why california has had these rolling blackouts is because of how much it's turned it's decommissioned especially on its nuclear side that suddenly its grid is not very stable and its grid's capacity can't meet peak demand. Um, and especially its grid stability can't meet peak demand. And so that is, um, 
a concern that I, like I said, I, I'm not saying that that's a fact. I'm not saying that's why it happened, but I am saying that I'm concerned that that may have caused a role in why California was running into those blackouts. And I'd be interested to see if, um, the utilities out there or the grid operator out there will kind of look into that, or if there will be any sort of studies to kind of see, um, you know, if that played a role and why they had to, I'd be really interested, you know, because um, from where I sit, not knowing very much, especially about California's grid entirely, other than the fact that I know that they've offloaded a lot of um, baseload power plants like coal and nuclear and um, standby stuff like natural gas, that I'm worried that maybe that left them vulnerable for something like this. Um, and so I think in like a, a different episode, I, I may try and kind of break down nuclear a little bit more. I mean, now that we're running at like an hour and 20 minutes, I think it's probably a, a pretty decent spot to end. And I think I'm rambling a decent amount at this point, but I think I've gotten you to the point where after listening to this episode, and maybe I don't know if, if you need to listen to it a couple of times, because some spots may have to kind of go back over and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm like the cleanest at trying to explain this stuff. Um, But hopefully now you have a much better understanding of how you get power, right? How it is that right now your phone has the available charge because you charged it, you know, the other night, plugging it into the outlet in your wall or the computer you're working on right now at work or whatever is powered up. Um, and if you have any more questions or any, anything that you felt like I wasn't clear on, or you didn't know, or, uh, or, or want to learn more about, or think that I was wrong about, you know, certainly if I was wrong somewhere and, and somebody notices that's, I'm happy to take that criticism and, and correct it. Um, but if, if you found this interesting, please let me know. Um, if you want to hear more about it, please let me know. We can either talk about it or I can, you know, do another episode somewhere down the line to kind of discuss further on this stuff. Um, But that basically wraps it up as far as uh, my first science episode. And I appreciate y'all tuning in. And that's uh, been a good run since. Peace out. Peace out.